welcome to With Heart Podcast. For fellow visionaries, creators, and heart-centered folks, to inspire us to create our lives, our businesses, and ultimately the world with heart. Through the stories, insight, and advice of folks who are doing this very thing right now. Today, I welcome Cheryl Burroughs, and she is a multidisciplinary artist who utilizes provocative artwork to facilitate important and transformative conversations. You describe your work as exploring the concept of identity beyond racial, cultural, and societal definitions, using art to deconstruct what identity means, reflect what equity capacity building looks like, and cultivate new unconventional dialogues about our common humanity. Well, welcome, Cheryl. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, it's a pleasure to have this conversation. So I believe you started out as a visual artist, and now you are facilitating dialogue as art. So tell us a little about your journey to the work that you do today and what drew you specifically to art as dialogue. Uh, yes, um, I started my art career many, 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 many years ago. I don't want mm -hmm. to say because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, give any indication of my age, um, <laughs> Sure, which is really silly. But anyway, uh, I have always been an artist. I did not actually know that I was an artist until I was about 36. Mm. Um, I always uh, made things, created things, uh, whether it was some sort of crafts-oriented type of project or painting a room. I, I have always been interested in the creative process. However, I did not formally, uh, I guess, take on the label of artist until I was 36. Very early in my career, I was very interested in exploring what racism uh, was about. Uh, I am African-American and the ways in which racism had impacted my life. I uh, was also uh, very much an antiquer, a thrift store person. I would often go to antique malls, and for anyone who's uh, familiar with that process, it's usually you know lots of, lots of little booths where people sell what they have found. And I noticed these objects, uh, the actual term for these objects is called Black Americana, Black Memorabilia. They are racist images that, um, let's just say, appear in the formats of salt and pepper shakers, coffee tins, ashtrays, you name it, uh, it exists. So these are very derogatory images, very exaggerated images that um, are very stereotypical in terms of what African-American people were supposed to look like, represent, so on and so forth. Anyway, what I noticed was that uh, not only were they outrageously racist, but they were outrageously expensive. And usually the more racist, the more expensive. And I became very upset about that. So there was sort of a process that went on. Uh, I won't talk about that now, but as I started to think about it, uh, I really felt victimized by it. And um, instead of remaining angry about it, I decided to collect these objects myself. So I did that for many years. And uh, one afternoon, I was sitting in my studio and happened to look at an object that I owned. Uh, the object, I don't know if I can say the word uh, out loud. Um, uh, it's the N-word, but the name of the object is the Jolly N-word Bank. It is a cast iron bank, a uh, representation, it's a head and a torso, so the head and then the shoulders and upper body. There is a hand that is turned upwards that is attached to one side. And it is actually a coin bank. You drop the nickel or the dime or whatever in the slot. There is a lever on the back. The hand, I'm sorry, the, the, the coin is placed in the hand. You press the lever, the hand goes up to the mouth, and the eyes roll back in 
the head. It is a very ugly bank. Um, however, it's another example of one which is extremely expensive if you can find it in very good condition. So I happened to look at that and I thought, it just came out of nowhere. Could that be a Buddha? If I gilded it in gold, would it change the connotation? Would it change the meaning? Would it change its racist um, uh, impact or its racist interpretation? So that's what started this exploration into what these stereotypes, these racist images actually mean. And I created a body of work, mixed media work, uh, drawings, um, anything that I could find that I could change to ask the question, what is it that we're really looking at? It was created for a specific reason, yes, to demoralize, to demean African-American people. However, would our perception of that change its power? Mm. That also speaks to our relationship with power. And where does that really come from? Is it the object itself or is it what we bring to the object? If we engage negatively with the object, does that increase its power? So these questions stayed with me and what I realized during uh, exhibitions and discussions with people was that most individuals were profoundly uncomfortable with what I was doing. They didn't understand it. And I often heard that, uh, or I was asked the question, are you celebrating these objects? That was a very kind of concrete interpretation. And I realized that there wasn't a way for people to unpack what they were seeing. So I decided to try to have an artist talk every time I had an exhibition. But what I also noticed was that people are very skittish about discussing their views about racism for all kinds of reasons, especially in our present culture where people's opinions are, um, I don't know how, I mean, there's just a bunch of yelling going on, I guess is what I'm trying to say. People don't have the opportunity to express an opinion and feel safe to express their opinion. And uh, that's what led to thinking about actually having group dialogues about what people are feeling uh, and using art as the catalyst to do that. So it was uh, many, many years of just observing what was being observed about my work and then realizing that there really aren't very many places where people can come together and sit together and actually say what they feel without fearing some sort of, uh, you know, repercussion or judgment. And that became very important to me to provide that type of experience for people. So that was kind of a long-winded um, <laughs> uh, explanation of how I transitioned from being an artist that actually makes things to being interested more in the art of dialogue mm. and what that looks like and also how we can talk about things in a way that is not superficial. Because for me, these objects, black Americana, it's a very superficial interpretation of what African American people are supposed to be. However, why can't that be questioned and why can't that be um, something that leads us into a deeper conversation about what our humanity looks like? That's not something that's easy to do because everybody's so reactive to the racist nature of what they're looking at. However, that's not the only experience that can happen, in my opinion. And what are the other experiences available to us? And what does that say about not only 
who we are as individuals, but who we are as a collective, especially in how we talk about what humanity looks like. So it's a, a kind of a, no pun intended, coming through uh, the human experience through the back door, you know, because you're coming through something, you know, extremely upsetting and extremely difficult, mm. but it can lead to something that is actually nurturing and healing, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do. Like, okay, how do we get, how do we get over there? So it's, it's, and again, it's not easy, but I, I am very committed to um, all the possibilities around that, making, making something like that happen for people. Mm. And what's really interesting about art is often you're not providing an answer, but you're providing a question. And it sounds like that's a, a lot of what you are facilitating in that process is what if we came here with openness and facilitated this conversation and allowed ourselves to be real in this moment? And yeah, and let's ask the questions. Let's explore identity. Let's move deeply into this. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that the value of a piece of art is that it doesn't tell people how uh, or what to think or feel. It, mm. it offers a window to their own experience of mm. the object or the image. And then they get to observe their own individual reaction of what they're seeing and experiencing. And then they're given the opportunity to examine their own feelings, assumptions, beliefs. And it's permission to dwell in the unknown and the un irrational. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm saying... If you sit with me for uh, a two-hour dialogue, let's take a risk. Let's suspend all we think we believe for the two hours that we're together and not concern ourselves so much with a logical or linear conversation. Let's ask questions and see what that question brings up and then see what that next question brings up. Uh, one of my, uh, I will call him a guru, because he is my guru, James Baldwin, the renowned African-American writer, uh, most renowned writer, I think, of the 20th, 20th century, and mm -hmm. for me, the 21st century as well. Uh, a quote uh, that he, um, I think it was the early 60s, uh, he was quoted in a magazine. Um, he said, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden by the answers. And that was uh, extremely an extremely profound idea to think about, a, idea, you know, a concept to think about. So we all think we know the answers. At least I think I know the answers most of the time. I guess I'll speak for myself. <laughs> uh, however, we don't know the answers because everything changes all the time. So yes, we might have an answer, you know, it might be the right answer in this moment, but tomorrow it might be the wrong answer because something has shifted. So if we just dwell in uh, inquiry and we dwell in asking questions, by default, you can't remain in the superficial because each question is going to take you deeper and deeper and deeper into a knowledge not only about what you know you are as an individual but how the world around you impacts what your life is hmm. and that's really important i think it's a very important distinction because until you question what you believe your reality is uh, you're going to be kind of stuck in mm -hmm. what society dictates to us as a culture, as women, as men, as, you know, there's a societal language that we've all grown up with and that we're all carrying around. However, it's something that was taught to us. It is not innate. We're not born with it. We learn it. And a lot of that information, a lot of that language, I believe, is extremely flawed. Hmm. 
so in order to uh, get to the roots of what is true and what is not, you have to ask questions. And you have to push back against, you know, the boundaries of what uh, is presented to you as truth and, you know, dissect little pieces that aren't true, you know, so you dissect the little pieces that aren't true and you place them over here and then you glean other little pieces that are true and then you look at what you've got and you decide what really uh, represents the absolute truth of who you are as opposed to what society tells you Mm. you are. Mm -hmm. Well, and you actually um, have this quote from Terrence McKenna on your website and it and it says um culture is for the convenience of culture not you how many times have your sexual desires career aspirations financial dealings and aesthetic inclinations been squashed twisted rejected and minimized by cultural values and if you don't think culture is your enemy ask the 18 year old kid who is given a rifle and sent to the other side of the world to murder strangers if culture is your friend and so a similar i think um take two on that so like we need to question these things about society often we are refining them limiting but and we're feeling that tension but we won't do that uncomfortable thing of questioning or even coming together and having these conversations and these dialogues and so i was going to ask you you've been um holding these dialogues for i believe a few years and i'm sure it's changed over time but can you relate a story or two about your experience in in one of those or like how you saw it shape you know the people that were attending and um, like so the power of the dialogue uh, yes the power of the dialogue is only powerful if there is some atmosphere of trust hmm. so that's the first thing I try to establish immediately that uh, you are absolutely free to say whatever it is you need to say about whatever the topic is or whatever it is that we're talking about. So with uh, my dialogues, I use a, a piece of art uh, as, the, as a catalyst, let's say. And mm-hmm. either my art, my personal art, or uh, a piece of art that I have come across most are provocative and controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes it easy to question what it is people believe that they're seeing. And then also, uh, because I would say 99% of the time, whatever it is that people are viewing, it makes them extremely uncomfortable. So to establish trust and um provide uh, a freedom for people to speak in a way that they aren't normally allowed to in our culture at this moment. Uh, And then to also express that whatever it is, whatever ground we cover, it is most certainly going to be messy. Hmm. It is going to be messy. And that is okay. We're just simply talking, and if we're not feeling so great in the moment, let's just breathe our way through it and see where we end up. There's no destination, Mm -hmm. you know, so there isn't anywhere we're trying to get to. We're just simply here together, Uh, and I, I, I also offer... Let's see if we can come into communion. We are together in this, and we're supporting each other, just simply being human. We're flawed. We might say something that might upset somebody else, but let's see what's, you know, within that. What is it can we learn in that discomfort? And... You know, I've had situations where there have been um, reactive, highly reactive moments, hyper-reactive moments. Mm. Uh, But what happens when you're hyper-reactive is that literally you're blinded. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because it's this rush of emotion. Uh, you know, you're feeling like everything's out of control. You're feeling like, you know, you can't make sense of things and you just want it to stop. Mm. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to feel like this. You just want it to stop. But the truth is those are the perfect opportunities to just sort of say, yeah, let's feel that. You know, it, it's, it's, I think, often worse when you try to resist it because it, that tension against tension, it causes, you know, more friction. So mm -hmm. it makes it more difficult to kind of pull yourself out of it. So you're just, you know, kind of awash with either despair or uh, anger, you know, so this is blinding. And what do we need to try to see more clearly? And often that just means sitting in the discomfort and saying what the truth of that feeling is. And then let's take it, okay, so you're feeling uncomfortable, all right. Now, we're here in the present moment. Um, much of my work has a historical lineage. Mm. Um, and I think history often is used as personal definition in ways that I don't think is healthy, especially culturally. If a, if a culture has experienced some sort of trauma historically, that is what present the descendants continue to live that experience as a truth and as a definition of their culture, as their people, as their tribe. So within the context of my dialogues, I really encourage people to sort of look at history as something that absolutely did happen in the past. But we're here in the present moment. We're all here together. I'm African-American, and my history is tied to the legacy of slavery, a very traumatic, awful, uh, something you wouldn't wish on any other human being, the uh, brutality of what happened to my ancestors. I encourage people to look at that and decide if they absolutely understand the difference between defining oneself by history as opposed to looking at history as simply a reference for how we can liberate ourselves from that particular experience. I want to hold my ancestors up, not in the space of trauma, but in a way that they can absolutely be celebrated. Mm. What they went through was a terrible thing, but they did it so that I could be free and that I could live a different type of life. And I don't want to uh, dishonor them by continuing to live in a way that they wouldn't wish for me. They wouldn't wish that I, you know, go through what they went through. And they would want to experience the freedom that I now have living in the 21st century. So... That's just sort of an example of what I try to help people with in terms of thinking about what it is they think they understand about whatever it is they're seeing and whatever it is that we're talking about. So if I can help them understand that there's another little step that they can take that will change, just change a little bit, just shift them out of a place of not feeling empowered. You know, they might feel victimized by something or they might be shamed by something. Maybe that's not what's really happening right now, right now in this moment. In this moment, something different is happening. So that's a little bit of space. You know, it's a little bit of space. Mm -hmm. And it can um, help us be more in touch with if, you're feeling this way about, you know, whatever art that it is that I'm showing. I'm also feeling that way. So that's a commonality. And that's something that, because, you know, feeling uncomfortable is such an isolating experience. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel very alone in that. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if I present to you that I'm also feeling uncomfortable, mm -hmm. so let's support each other in that. And then let's see what else, what little, what little tidbit we can learn about ourselves. Why is it that we're feeling uncomfortable? And what little bit can change so that we don't feel so victimized 
by whatever we're feeling right now. Mm. So I don't always get there with people because (laughs) often I'm caught up in something and I can't see my way through it. But Mm -hmm. that's also, you know, I'm flawed as well. I'm not, you know, presenting myself as any sort of expert or, um, you know, enlightened. I am not enlightened. But I do think that this is a common experience that all human beings have. And coming together in these groups is the perfect opportunity to share that perspective. And then, you know, it's sort of like it's planting little seeds. Then, you know, when an individual leads me, then they go out into the world with whatever it is they've gotten from the two hours that we've been together. And then they plant, you know, little seeds themselves. Mm. So that's a, it's a trickle down effect. You know, it's like the, yeah. the cliche of the pebble and the, you know, the, the river and the ripples <laughs> that go out. And, you know, it's ultimately uh, a very powerful thing, a yeah. powerful experience. Yeah. It's really beautiful picture of like how change really happens on the ground in a way right? It's these little things. It's that choice to go and spend two hours actually feeling your emotion, you know? And it sounds like you understand that this is a messy process. And you're like, I'm not perfect. They're not perfect. We're going to have these emotions, but you're, but you're willing to go there and you're holding that space for people. I think that's really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's very important. Uh, Mm. it, It doesn't happen enough. I mean, unfortunately, we are a culture that wants everything tied up in a nice little bow. That is how we are conditioned, you know. Right. We are born, you know, we grow up, we go to the best schools, you know, then we get the perfect job, then we get the perfect partner, then we have the perfect mm. kids, you know, and <laughs> it's, it's really a, a disastrous path because mm. it's not a linear process. All types of things happen to people all the time, and a lot of them are not good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So people's lives are blown up all the time, and mm-hmm. then they don't know how to figure out how to heal it or fix it or whatever all that looks like. Mm-hmm. This is a, a very prevalent thing in all cultures, in all societies, because we're programmed to believe that things have to be a certain way, when in fact, it doesn't happen that way. And thank you for bringing Terrence McKenna up, because he's also another guru of mine. Um, He just was so prescient in understanding that culture is not our friend. Hmm. And uh, one of his other questions that I also use when I meet with people is... uh, is culture a constriction of humanness? Mm. You know, this is very profound. Because if you're caught up and running around in the cultural form, you're actually taking on information that doesn't have anything to do with you as, a, as, a, as an individual, as a person, as a human being. It's just an application, something that's applied to you so that you think that you belong and you think that you are a part of something. However, that's fine until it's not because that changes all the time too. Sure. So people are often confused, you know, because one moment, you know, the fashion trend says you're supposed to wear blue. And then the next season, it's brown. So you got all this blue in your closet. (laughs) (laughs) But now you have to run out and buy all this brown so that you feel like you fit in and that you are seen and uh, heard. And this is a a cycle that has been going on since, I guess, the cavemen, except cavemen were beating themselves over the heads with their clubs, maybe, or that's the way that they communicated to one another. I, I, I don't know. But <laughs> it's, it's a very simplistic uh, example of how mm. culture works. And then if you splinter it off into race and, you know, gender, LGBT, you know, everybody's just looking for a way to belong to a, what's perceived to be a huge collective, like one thing. However, we are not just one thing. 
We are multidimensional, complex beings, every one of us. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like, you know, for each person might be a little different, but nonetheless, we are extremely, extremely complex. It is not a one-size-fits-all model. But this is what we're led to believe. So everybody's trying to fit into this one-size-fits-all and not understanding that, you know, that's not really helpful and it's not really uh, a reality. It's not the reality. It's what they Mm -hmm. think is the reality, but it's not the reality. And I know that's a little abstract, but just because it's been out there for 150 years doesn't mean that it's true, whatever it is you're being told. And um, unless you have just some basic knowledge that that can be questioned, you're always going to run up against some sort of difficulty because you're always going to be reminded why you are not enough, Mm. you know? Yes, (laughs) unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah, Yeah. unfortunately. And I think, too, uh, once you described identity as an ongoing renegotiation with reality, so would you say that it's also not necessarily something that's, like, permanent and, like, solid, but it evolves over time? I do, yes, I do believe it evolves. I think that as we grow and mature and learn more knowledge that resonates with us, how can we help but not change? Mm. I would say that what needs to be addressed more often is that the knowledge, again, that's presented that is meant to define a person. So, for instance, I'm African American again, and there are um, perceptions and definitions that are supposed to absolutely represent who I am in terms of the rest of the world. So, I'm going to go into some very, very simplistic examples. I'm not saying that this is for everybody, but just to sort of break it down um, into just, you know, tiny little increments, just thinking about, you know, the world of hip hop, African American people are usually associated with a particular way of speaking, a particular type of dialect, because the culture does stem from a very traumatic experience historically. Unfortunately, that experience has transcended into an experience within the 21st century where African Americans are experiencing oppression, injustice. They are not welcome into higher echelons of society. You know, that's, again, a very simplistic sort of explanation of what it means to be African-American. African-American men are being gunned down for no reason. You know, that is an absolute truth. But it also is a container of limitation. So if you think about being a human being, you know, there's a framework, first of all. So think of uh, maybe a portrait, a rectangle or a square. And then within that is, a foundation, there's a foundation that's built, this foundation of what we are supposed to be as a human, uh, African-American human, and then there's a nucleus. There's a, a center that is filled with lots of information that says, this is all that's available to you. This is it. It's not very much. And because you look a certain way, your body is, you know, brown, your hair is a little different, you speak differently than, you know, let's say white society, then you are a problem and we don't want you. And we're going to do everything we can to keep you at best on the periphery and at worst exterminate you. So this is a very extreme experience. And if you are confined within it and you don't have anything to contradict that story, then you don't know how to live any other way. So this is a very, again, complex thing. And until you start asking different questions, 
like, oh, well, this is what I'm being told, but why is that true? Hmm. But the, the difficulty is also is that there are examples in the world that do speak to that truth. You know, I mean, that, that there are terrible things that are happening to African-American people. However, there, it's not happening to all African-American people. Hmm. So, you know, are you just talking about one little particular group or are you talking about all African-American people? And that's a huge number. So there's different degrees of these experiences, but the information that we're given is that it's just this one way. So that's the renegotiation, hmm. you know. So you're saying, okay, so it's like, all right, well, all right, this is what I'm being told. All right, so is this true in my personal life? And some of it may be true, but some of it may not be true. And that's the work. You know, that's the work because you're just not buying in to the entirety of right. whatever it is that you're being told. And uh, that's the work. And it's very hard work. And it's very hard to stay out of that definition that I just gave because the finality of it is what society wants you to believe, that this is all that's available to you. Um, and it's very hard to pull oneself out of that and say, maybe not, <laughs> you know, maybe sure. not. But that's also unknown territory, right? You know, if you pull yourself out of it and you say, maybe not, but, but you don't quite know what else is there. Right. And that's, you know, and that's scary to go into also. So I can understand why people don't want to and why it feels very um, untenable is what I'm trying to say. It just doesn't feel, I mean, it feels impossible. Hmm. But Not only I difficult, but impossible. Impossible, yeah. It feels that way, at least. It feels that way, but it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it can't be done. And so mm -hmm. I believe in all possibilities. You know, if you keep yes. possibility just kind of floating in the ether yeah. of your being that po all possibilities you know that there might be something available uh you have a better chance of extricating yourself from a life that isn't experienced as something meaningful so you know with terence and the whole counterculture thing that's a very 60s you know phrase uh, had a big presence in the 1960s to be counterculture Mm -hmm. But I think it is more powerful now than ever. Whatever comes to you and it doesn't feel right, be counter culture. Mm. Go the opposite direction. <laughs> you yeah. know, run screaming, you know, the opposite direction and see what happens. Yeah. And so you're kind of you're advocating to really... Um, like honor who you are as an individual, even in the ways that it doesn't align with necessarily how the culture that you identify with or are part of might say that you should be. If you're not that, you're not that. Right. And again, that is a very murky place to be in. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, because the problem with categorizing people is that it often, as I said, dictates the way that people should be treated. Mm. And these experiences influence how people see themselves, how they view themselves, and how they define their life experience. But that's also, you know, happens within the family, too. Sure. You know, it's not just culture. It's, it's, it's also, you know, a familial experience. And we receive all types of information from our parents about who we are because that's all we've got when we're little kids, you know. Mm -hmm. And we take on a lot of information based on difficulties our parents have gone through, uh, things that have happened to them, you know, and we don't know how to extricate ourselves from that, much less from society at large. So, you know, you've got the micro and the macro, and it's, this is just what it is. Mm -hmm. but, it, it, but it is part of the human experience. This is what it means to be human. It's about building skill sets to be able to work with all of these uh, ambiguous, contradictory 
confusing, you know, it's building a little toolbox to be able to navigate and manage all of this. Mm. So that's really interesting, right? Because you brought up um, the concept of the common humanity or humanness. So it's like as we move away from those, or as we at least question those generalizing of who we are, the way that the culture generalizes people, and um, we get more in touch with our actual individual identity, that can often be isolating in a way because the culture, um, even though it generalizes how you should be, you are at least aligning with a group. And so you have that sense of togetherness, I guess, even though it it ends up being too constrictive or too limiting. And so when you begin to question and move into, well, who am I, even the parts of me that does not fit that, that can draw you away from that community in a way, I would, I would assume. And so, but then you're also bringing up this sense of like, so yes, we're diving deep into me as an individual, um, or all of us as individuals and how we're just going to be unique in some way. Um, but at the same time, there's still this common humanity that we can connect with. Yes. Focusing on the individual, I think is very important. But what I also would add is that mining, let's say, the deeper aspects of who we are and understanding that we are not just one thing and asking what does it look like to be multidimensional. To be a multidimensional human being means that you can choose aspects of society that do work for you so that when you feel like you can be a part of the collective. It just provides more freedom and a way to have autonomy. So you can have autonomy, but still be part of the collective. It's just, you just True. say no, no more often. You know, you're mm-hmm. not so ready to just sort of, the group decides a particular thing. So think about the workplace. Um, you know, there's something that needs to be taken care of. You know, you have a deadline but something within you knows that something is not right. Everybody else is saying, okay, this is how it has to be done, but there's something within you that knows it's not right. So do you stand up and say that it's not right? Mm. Or do you stand up and say, well, I have a concern about this. If you decide to go ahead with whatever it is just because you have to meet the deadline, understand that my concern is blah, 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 blah. Now, whether that happens or not is not the point. The point is that you've stood up and you have said something that you need to say that is a truth as to how you view it, and you're not so worried about what people think or, you know, the recrimination or acrimony or, you know, all of that. But that's, it's not easy to do. Yeah. uh, Because you are the person that is causing other people the problems, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. If they've made a decision and they want to go ahead with it, they don't want somebody else saying that, you know, it's not okay. <laughs> sure. But you you're know? saying it's important that if you believe that, that you say something. So even bringing that. So I know you too want to bring these um, identity dialogues to like organizations and corporations and nonprofits and, and how, and you've been talking about now how the, these concepts are really relevant to the work environment. Uh, yeah, I believe so, because uh, everybody's just walking around projecting stuff mm-hmm. onto one another. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just projections. They're not actually connections. You know, mm-hmm. people aren't necessarily connected in a functional manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, workplaces often thrive on dysfunction. Right. Um, pitting people against one another, competition, you know, then this is just, you know, in the culture at large, competition. It is the reason that people are sick. You know, people have lots of physical ailments, but they're not attributing it to whatever's happening in their workplace or whatever, the, you know, the ways that they're uh, being diminished in the workplace. Mm. Because not everybody wants to be competitive. And not everybody has sort of a cutthroat mentality. I'm not saying that all workplaces are like that, but that is a prominent model. So what would it look like to have a functional workplace where people are actually connected to one another 
because they have sat down and had very messy dialogues about who it is they believe themselves to be. And once, I believe, you start having those types of conversations, it is a way to cultivate a more humane workplace or sense of workplace because if people feel like they can speak and then they also feel that they are heard, that just accentuates or there's a deeper connection to themselves and finding a balance which positively impacts their sense of of who they are. So if you take that into the workplace and you take that energy into the workplace, that can have a very, very exciting, even more productive process in how things get done. Because people are willing to work together as opposed to seeing each other. And I'm not saying, you know, people are programmed to see each other as the enemy, but there is a hierarchy and that might not go away. But if you can find some way to balance the truth of who you are within the context, then again, you may not feel so victimized. And you might be able to access different ways to deal with whatever is going on around you. Sometimes it might just mean that you simply have to leave Mm. because it's so toxic. But as you know, many people stay because they need the paycheck and they've created this life that society says you're supposed to be living you know, but you're drowning because you don't know how to pull yourself out of it. Yeah. You know, I heard the quote once, um, people don't leave companies, they leave toxic work environments. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. There was a, a very famous designer. His name was Massimo Vignelli. He had a huge design firm in New York City. He, he was from Italy. His, very early in his career, he made a very profound decision. He understood sort of how the game went, you know. So you open up a company and you bring in lots of clients and the client usually doesn't know what it is that they want. So you follow the client's instructions and then the client looks at what you've come up with and they say, no, I didn't say that. This is what I meant. And so it's this, you know, ongoing cycle of not getting anything done. And then he said there's another type of client the likelihood that you will amass lots of these types of clients is not likely, but if you can find a client who will come in, give you a good briefing, and then leave you alone and let you do what you do. He chose to go that way. You know, I I won't have a lot of clients. I don't know how I'm going to pay my employees. I don't know what it's going to look like, but this this is the type of client that I want. So he turned down a lot of people very early on in his career. But what happened was he became one of the biggest designers in the world. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the store. uh, Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the store, the store Bloomingdale's in New York City. I mean, there's Bloomingdale's all over the country now. But there's uh, their famous Bloomingdale's brown bag. It's a big tote bag, and it's brown. Mm -hmm. I think he designed that maybe in the in the 80s I'm not sure but it was the first time anything like that something that simple uh, had been designed and now it's a ubiquitous you know everybody's using it nobody had used like you know a brown paper bag you know it just was something that had never been done before he also designed the and this airline is not in um, I don't think it's around anymore and I'm I'm gonna go on a limb I I believe he designed the American Airlines logo Oh, okay. So big, big, big. I mean, if it wasn't American, it was another big airline. I'm pretty sure it was American Airlines. Uh, So he had a huge, huge career. But that very scary decision early on in his career, you know, I don't know if I would be able (laughs) to do that, you know. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) You know, it took a lot of courage to to do that. So I just say that to say that... He, he made a decision to run his business a particular way because he wanted to have the freedom to be a creative, a true creative, mm-hmm. when, as you know, it, it tends to be the opposite. People right. just let the client dictate whatever it is they need to dictate, and they do it, you know? 
yeah and and suffer through it you know right. suffer through it it's not a it's not a happy process and this is just kind of the the way things are done and people accept that but yeah i don't know it doesn't have to be like that i i that's the question yes well and it's such a a really interesting example of someone who decided no that doesn't have to be <laughs> the way and he was going to like move through and you called him courageous and brave like he was brave he moved through that tension of, you know, I might not have a lot of people who are going to hire me. I don't know how I'm going to pay my employees, but I'm going to wait until I find someone who trusts me. Because that's kind of how I was hearing it too. Like, he's like, I want a client that trusts me. And is not like micromanaging everything that I'm doing. Yeah. And with your example, like he sort of proved that like all this innovation comes out of that. Like when we move away from these toxic work environments, what really cool and interesting things could come out of that if we actually trusted people, empowered them, like moved into these messy conversations that helped us move past um, unhealthy competition. So like what's interesting is you were talking about the competition that happens. Like I kind of at least personally see it, it could it could happen in a couple of different ways, right? So like when you have a competition, you have yourself and an opponent. And so then that's often how we we operate in the work environment is like, there's me and then there's other people I have to sort of prove that I'm better than because I don't feel secure that I'm even going to have a job. <laughs> and then, and the, the insecurity of that, um, and I think even Simon Sinek talks about um, how like, helping people feel safe in their job <laughs> is, is a huge, huge thing that can really improve performance and all that stuff, right? But there's that type of competition. And then I kind of wonder about, well, what if you're on a team and you're just competing against creating something better than you did last time? <laughs> That's your opponents, just doing something better. But, but how are you doing that together? You know, bringing that connection back. It sounds like that's part of your vision of how you want to bring these dialogues to the workplace and to organizations and corporations. And, and so I was going to have you talk just a little bit more about what do you hope to bring with these dialogues in, in this like next phase of what you're trying to do or what you're hoping to do. And, um, and it sounds like possibly in the context of work environments. Yes. What I would like the aspiration is to actually come into a workplace and spend some time. I don't know what the duration would look like, maybe three weeks, and work with people uh, in groups and then also individually and just dissecting what they believe about themselves and how that does and doesn't fit into what their employers expect from them but also what society expects from them. Mm -hmm. And it's simply that process of dissection that leads to enabling them to ask different questions about what their experience is. Mm -hmm. Because most people are grounded in this particular way of living. And it's, you, you know, just beautifully described that sense of competition and this idea that a co-worker is the enemy and I have to, you know, like my numbers have to be higher next right. quarter, you know, all that type of thing. When in fact, how do we create more humane mm -hmm. workplaces, more humane experiences that help people come together to support each other in reaching those higher numbers? How do we connect with one another to achieve that goal. Mm. So I don't know what it looks like. We're not <laughs> going to know until we sit down and do it. Sure. That's the beauty of creating art. <laughs> right. And it's creating art. Mm. But as you know, you know, this is very difficult. This is, I keep, I've said difficult probably 30,000 times during, this. <laughs> <laughs> during our interview here together. Um, I don't know what any of it is going to look like. Mm. So, I don't have, for instance, I know that just in terms of looking at people that do this kind of work, you know, with capacity building and diversity trainings and inclusiveness mm -hmm. trainings and all of that, there is, you know, a blueprint. What people need to do to have better understandings of people who are different than them, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just saying, <laughs> let's, let's blow, blow that, all that up. I don't do that. 
Mm-hmm. I come in as a big question mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're all going to just sit and be question marks for a little while. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we talk about probably will not make sense in the moment, but it might make sense when you have to make a very, very quick decision about something that needs to happen mm-hmm. in your job. I'm here for you to bounce off of, literally. You just say whatever it is, and then I'll nudge you in a different direction, and you see how you feel about that. And then we might come back over here and look at this again. You need to be this uncomfortable. You need to be this confused so that you can maybe look at something that scares you. You know, what scares you? And then how does that impact your decision-making process? or the type of person that you choose to work with or, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's these little sticky places that are are crucial. And it is something that can't be literal, concrete kind of process. Mm. It has to be kind of crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Has to be kind of crazy. (laughs) Has to be a little out there, has to be a little crazy. So it's certainly not for everyone, and I'm, you know, I'm not tooting my horns. I, I like I'm the one that knows because I don't. But mm. I fully believe that uh, it does have to be a very abstract experience, and within those abstractions, there might be a little something that's maybe more literal than you intended. You know, mm-hmm. you might end up understanding something, mm-hmm. and that's great. But let's not set it up so that. It has to be one, two, three, four, five. Let's go one to 10, back to three, jump to 20, (laughs) back to, you know, 15. You know, that's where the good stuff exists. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just thinking, I'm just so excited for what it is that you're like here to bring, you know? Um, And I was thinking about like how much more powerful, as you were describing this, how much more powerful it would be to sit with that question. You know, we move to it and answer, but the moment you try to define an answer, you've limited the possibilities, right? Yeah. So if we if we slow that down, it sounds like you're at, you're like I'm going to help facilitate that process of slowing this down, and actually sitting with the question, which actually more reflects life, anyways, because our situation and circumstance they're always changing, and so the answer that you had. A week ago, whether it be in your business or your life or whatever, might not even apply today, <laughs> right? So yes. if, if we actually build the skill of working with the question, like how much more powerful would that be and like lead to such interesting innovations, I would think. I agree. I believe <laughs> I agree. that. I believe. Uh, you know, mm. and I think just briefly and particularly in our culture right now, everything happens so fast. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, turnaround is so fast. People are competing on a level that I don't think has ever existed before. I I, believe you. (laughs) I think, you know, it's always been, thinking about, you know, the advertising world, I mean, it's always been competitive and somewhat cutthroat, I guess. But I think just because of, you know, the Internet and, and how quickly information is disseminated and how there's a huge competition for content, mm-hmm. you know, so there, there's so much content. There's no way that we can absorb a tenth of what is out there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, everybody's fighting, 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 fighting for all these eyeballs, you know, mm-hmm. stay on our page, stay on our website. <laughs> and, right. But there are people who are creating this content mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, second to second to second to second to second, making decisions about what is going to be put out there. And none of it is helpful. So I, I, I thank you for bringing up the word slowing down. I am trying to slow things down. Hmm. So let's slow our breath down. Right. You know, even, if, even if it's just for two hours, let's slow down and take a real good hard look mm. and then let's see what happens it's <laughs> like then let's see what happens <laughs> i don't well, think it's a, i don't think it's a lot to ask but anyway yeah. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on with heart today. And I want to give you the opportunity. Um, so for all those of us who would love to hear more about what you have to say and be involved in these dialogues and companies or organizations that might want to bring you to them, how do they find you? They can find me on one place, my website. I do not have a social media presence anymore. Um, so if you would like to find me, you can check out my website, www.cheryl, I will spell my name, S as in Sam, H-A-R-Y-L-L, Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-U-G-H-S, dot com Cheryl Burroughs com Nice Well thank you so much Cheryl I've, This was such an, an interesting and engaging conversation today and I so look forward to continue to follow what you're doing and to seeing the awesome impact that you're making So thank you Thank you generally It was a pleasure Thank you so much <laughs>